Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 22. This is part 1. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. Well Pete, welcome to chapter 22. Jeez, we're getting through these, although it's taken nearly nearly a whole year. Uh, so, are you ready? I'm ready. It's good to be here. I'm ready. I'm ready. Interesting well, chapter. It is, and it's very long, so let's get let's get into it. In, in this chapter, just as a little prelude, he does a lot of copy and pasting of well-written authors of various things, as, as Spensky is wont to do. He has done this all through the book. So a lot of this chapter, although it's quite long, is a lot of this copy and pasting. And we're just going to pull out the points that, that Spensky is trying to make and discuss those, I think, is the yeah. best approach. I, and I totally agree. Otherwise, it would take us another year because there's, there's a lot of this. Um, I think what he's doing now, though, is what's been a very, very technical book in so many ways, you know, and he has been using a mathematical model to define the fact that consciousness can't be pinned on even a mathematical model based in three-dimensional mathematics and three-dimensional logic. I mean, he's spent a book doing this. Um, what he's now doing is taking us into the realms of mysticism. And it's interesting now that where he's come to with how we define and how we understand consciousness from the point of view of the, the work that Uspensky's done in the book leading to this, we now find that there were maps in the past. There are systems, systems of the mystical aspects of religion um, from India and all around the world, I mean, we're going to start with India, but um, all around the world. And he's saying, look, this stuff isn't new. It's what I'm showing you has been known and practiced and accessed since the beginning of humanity. And we can show you different systems where it, it may have been hidden somewhere. It's right out in the open but there's been access to it. And I think it's a great, a great place for us to, to work. And where does he start? He starts with Max Muller and Theosophy. So I'll, I'm sorry, I just, I just thought I'd point that out. But let's, let's yeah. move on. And I, yeah, I think that's a great introduction because he is starting, well, his first sentence is basically saying, you know, if you wanted to trace historically where these systems that you're just, you're just mentioning were founded on this higher logic, that'd be very hard to do because... Mm. You know, they're, they're kind of, they're here, there and everywhere, but they are there. And so he said, so what, what he's going to do is just start at the beginning and, and trace a few, few of these through so you get some examples, really, of where this yeah. higher logic is available. I mean, he, he, does, he does say, doesn't he, that, you know, you, you can't trace the origin of this. I mm. mean, we can, we can say, okay, what we you have the the Vedas in and the Upanishads in in India, which we're going to come to, uh, but we don't know uh, when those ideas were first formulated. We don't even know when they were first written down. Yeah, you know, uh, we yeah. don't know whether whether that influenced um, something else in a country nearby China, or whether China, you know, Taoism in China influenced India, and God knows what. We can't talk about. Um, oh well, it all began here. We don't. What we do know is it's common to humanity all around the world. Yeah. And there are cultures that, that don't write anything, by the way. Let me tell you, um, I've mentioned before uh, that there is nothing living in, living in higher consciousness, higher logic than the first people of Australia. Nothing on earth comes, comes even close. Nothing. But where's the origin of that? The origin of that, we can only speculate, is the origins of those that race of people itself. It's been with them since the beginning because they never shut themselves down into the 3D world. They never developed hierarchical systems of control within their own societies. 
So they've had it all the time. It's impossible for us to to actually stick a date on it. And, you know, we live in this 3D world where everybody needs to have a label. Yeah, and, and you made a good point. These weren't written down. A lot of these were told storytelling. And understood, yeah. The dream time. There's a book called, um, actually, Stories from the First Day, which which explains this brilliantly. And even to this day, first people, first nation people in Australia, up in the Northern Territory, some in Western Australia that still live the old ways. They still do. Not many left now, but they still do. They live literally flu- a fluid life where one foot is permanently in the dream time. I mean, permanently in the dream time and the other foot is here. And I, in this book, it explains how if you listen to a conversation amongst them, even if you could understand the language, you would never know within one sentence whether they were referring to dream time or this world. They flow in and out of it, which is how they live. They understand, but we we don't because we have to have things put in little discrete dualistic boxes. It's it's really interesting. But there's no but there are no writings. There's no, no. there are, there's no religious uh, structure and there's no writing. Well, it's interesting too because uh, leading on from what you've just said, I think it's Spensky's having a little dig right on the very first page here, where he Go says, on, that, you know, <laughs> he says, uh, you know, to to even speculate where these these origins of, of this higher thinking came from, you get some people saying this and other people saying something that that controverts what they've said, and so there's there's just really nothing that you could hang your hat on and say well it's definitive. But then he says particularly conducive to the confusion are so-called theosophical authors, as, for example, uh, Shuray, C.W. Leadbeater, Dr. Rudolf Steiner and others, and then in italics, who know everything. (laughs) 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 I think that's a bit of a Spensky sarcasm. Who know everything. (laughs) Do you know something? Just, Just, I've got to tell you, just for once, just for once, that's left out. Of my version. Sat right. Oh, maybe yep. he offended a few people. Because <laughs> they were of his let, time. Let me tell you, that's exactly what I think has happened. I think his publisher has turned around and said, hang on, we, we could be in for a bit of flack here. And he's taken it out. But it's interesting that in that original version, he was prepared to aim his guns right at those big names and say, get over yourselves. Take you don't know everything. You, you know something, yeah. but you don't know I, everything. I, 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 that's the one thing where I'm now looking at the differences between our versions of this book where I wish I'd got yours. I loved that. Can you say it again? Can you read it again? <laughs> I will read it again. Particularly con- um, conducive to confusion are those so-called theosophical, in, in inverted commas, authors, as, for example, Shu Ray, C.W. Leadbeater, Dr. Rudolf Steiner and others in italics, who know everything. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, I love it. <laughs> well done, Spensky. So you've, 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 you've started well. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and then he goes on to say, I shall not dwell at all on the question of the succession of ideas, either from a historical or any other point of view, and then proceeds to move these. He's just going to look at the ideas themselves. Mm. And... Uh, and, you know, you can draw your own conclusions. So then we do move on to Max Muller. And he had, Max Muller uh, has a lot to say here. Max Muller's uh, writings dwell on India. And uh, Aspensky feels that, you know, this is one of the true places in the world where you can get some of the original teachings of the, this higher logic. I think it would help if we use a terminology here. Um so if we say that the the teachings that do lead people to spiritual evolution, i.e. connection with this higher logic, higher consciousness, higher mathematics, higher everything, we'll call those the mystery schools. Yeah. Every religion has Done. them. But the interesting thing is, and this is this is fantastic, is that when you go to India, there is no mystery school. It is what it is. It's not like um, Christian uh, teachings in the Western world where you you really struggle to gain access to the mystery schools in Christianity. You really do struggle. 
it is there when you know it and when you do know how to access it it's like oh it's all around us all the time but when you don't know it you wouldn't you would deny its existence um, in india not so and that's why i think it's great that he started with max muller who went to india and said this very thing you know there's there's a lovely little quote in the copy and paste from max muller right at the beginning he says in India is the all-absorbing influence which religion and philosophy may exercise on the human mind. In other words, it's, it's actually given to everybody. Whether or not you act upon it, whether or not you go to an ashram and spend days like, you know, making it, it's neither here nor there. But it's not denied to you. And you'll hear people talking about it and you'll know people in your family that are acting upon it and so on. It's not, it's not secret, it's so out in the open, in the writings and the, the, the practice and the way of living of the actual people. And interestingly too, because India is not a uh, commercial centre the, of the world per se, where the, the big dollar is where you know, people are revered for having lots of money, etc. In India, people are revered for having the knowledge of these mystery schools. Let me just quote what Aspensky says. Whoever was supposed to have caught a new ray of truth was visited by young and old, was honoured by princes and by kings, and looked upon indeed as holding a position far above that of kings and princes. Yeah, stop right there. That that Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? That's that's yeah. it. Do we have an example of postmodern Christian um, mysticism? having that effect anywhere in in modern history there is one obviously well, or i wouldn't have asked jesus christ no i said po post postmodern christianity so oh, we're talking about so what we what we don't want is medieval christianity we don't want the christianity of the reformation we want something from i guess the late 19th century early 20th oh. who who found themselves revered higher than princes and kings. There was somebody. I'm going to stop you from having to look into space. And yes, try stop and torturing me and tell me, tell me who. In the early 20th century, out of peasant Siberia emerged a scruffy mystic. I know who you mean. Let's not call him a monk because that's, that's a silly translation word. Some mystic came out, came out of nowhere. Rasputin, let's, you know, we're not being silly about this. Everybody will, that's listening will know we're talking about Rasputin. And within an instant, impressed, you, I'm going to tell you, the, arist arist the aristocracy and the royal ruling classes in Western Europe and in Russia, which Russia, by the way, is Western Europe, not Siberia on East, but where all the population is, it's European. Kid yourself not. It is. It's not Asiatic. The, that family was more exclusive than any other, the Russian one. You couldn't get anywhere near because it was the last remaining feudal society. So this peasant comes out of the East into St. Petersburg. And before you know it, and you've got to ask yourself how, this peasant is in the royal court. Scruffy. Apparently he stank, you know, he, he, he was averse to bathing <laughs> because he never had to. <laughs> um, and not only did he have a massive influence on the royal family, forget the fact that he was curing these bouts of haemophilia in the, the, the royal family's uh, male heir. Forget that. I mean, important and interesting though that miracle is because he was able to do it and well documented even by his enemies, that he did do it. He was then at a point where he was being called upon as like the special advisor. He was making policy. For you to have a position in the royal court of the Romanovs, you had to get on with Rasputin. Incredible. And he did this from nowhere as a peasant in the most incredibly short space of time because he had had this spiritually evolved experience that allowed him to bring special skills into the 3D world that we would have to call magic or miracles or whatever the heck. And, and this, this has happened. Revered above kings and princes. Yeah. That's Rasputin. And uh, unfortunately hated for it by those who, who did not have that skill. 
who Absolutely. could not get there like that. And people came to me. He had rooms in a building in St. Petersburg and aristocratic women were virtually queuing up to have sex with him. Yeah. If ever there was a reason to go down this path <laughs> of spiritual evolution. <laughs> That's it. That's the one. Where do we one. sign up? <laughs> well, I, I've, I signed up a long time ago. I'm working my way to... No. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Uh, and and there are, there are others. Can I just, just say something else? Yes, then? please do. In, yes, in yes. the mystical tradition, certainly from the, the Age of Enlightenment, there started coming out this story of this incredible character who seemed to live forever and always was at the right place at the right time. Nobody knew who he was, where he came from where he got his money from or whatever the hell, but he was always in the, the royal circles and the, the ruling circles at the right place at the right time when great events were taking place. Um, everybody's heard of Rasputin. I wonder how many people have heard of the Comte de Saint-Germain. Well, look up the Comte de Saint-Germain and find this mystical history. Who was the Comte de Saint-Germain? There is so much evidence that such a person was there and he was in places I and mean, it's well-documented but where did he go and where did he come from? Amazing. And he, he seems to have lived for hundreds of years. You know, it's like he, he, oh, he kept turning up. Mm -hmm. Comte de Saint-Germain. So these, wow. these, so there are, there is, you know, this idea of the mystic, the, the evolution of the, the spiritual soul does bring back, if you come back with it to the 3D dualistic world, it gives you incredible advantages when you can apply what what you know into this world. Yeah, and um, Muller does mention this. He says that having this advantage gives you the right to represent the whole, like the few to represent the whole. So yeah. he says, you know, you can't have an, you can't have a whole nation of people that have that that skill necessarily. But if you have these few, they can represent the many. They do come to do that. He says the gifted poets, doesn't he, and, and so on. What does he actually say? These, the poets, the lawgivers, the prophets, the teachers, those influential people define the culture of a nation. I am going to just call us back a little. Muller says that, but he's based on something that's constant. And it's constantly ignored, and it's one that I keep coming back to. I have done ever since we've been doing these recordings. And it is, ooh, let me think. Have I mentioned that today already? The First Nation people of Australia, where they don't have poets and teachers and lawgivers and prophets. That is one instance where the entire nation speaks for the nation, because they all are that person. They are all spiritually evolved, because they never devolved. They never, ever, ever, as a people, shut themselves off from it. So yeah, they don't. They they aren't represented by just a few gifted people. There are not. There are not in the First Nation of Australia a few people in each tribe who are the gifted dream time travellers. Everybody does it as a matter of course. And interesting. isn't it interesting how all these people that we just mentioned, including the whole. Um, yeah. The culture of the first people here in Australia have have this gift, but yet this other mob come in and destroy them. It's yeah. it's a it's almost like the same concept as come in and, and burn down the the art galleries and the libraries and things when you take over a, a country. You know, take away their culture. Yeah, well, that is that is what happens, and the great example of that was the burning of Alexandria, which was yeah. the seat of Western culture. It's Greek. Don't think it was Egyptian. It was Greek. And Hippolyta, a woman, ran the great Alexandrian library. She was the great philosopher of that age. And it was burned to the ground. We lost so much of the works that would actually open out the subject that we are talking about right now. Some of those, all, well, all of those great works, some of them, that was the only edition in the world, and the one, the one in the Alexandrian Library, and it was burned, and it was burnt on purpose. The question that goes begging is, why would you do that? Because you don't want everybody else to be expanded. Uh, 
so that they are on a level with you. You want to control them, own the world, control the resources. Ooh, would, would any human beings ever do that to their fellow man? Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. What do you think a ruling family is? What do you think a feudal society is? Yeah, I'm going to tell you right. that to, to an extent, Viking, Celtic, and so on, Saxon societies, they, they had elements of leadership. But I'll tell you what happened in the West here. It is the imposition of feudalism when the Normans conquered Britain that set the tone for how the Western world was going to be from that point on. Feudalism is the one that really buries you dead as a human race. And that very few people, very few people, at the top of that tree, that bloodline, and the acolytes that they put below them to be the, their aristocracy, they are a very few people, and they do bury, by calling it heresy, the one thing that people can do for themselves, and you don't have to be rich to do it, spiritual evolution on that scale, to that degree, which would free them from that control. And they would have to share everything then, wouldn't they? And they don't want to share everything. Well, I think what's more is they would not have a position of power. Well, they wouldn't. Because, because they, they would not have anything worthwhile that would set them above anyone else. It's... Well, yeah, and that's uh, what Muller's saying. You know, if you yeah. if you've got this uh, this ray of truth, this this knowledge, that is the thing that sets you apart. So you, you that's can what see. sets you apart. I'm just I just want to say though, don't let's not go down this road of devaluing material wealth. It's not the case that when you have this spiritual evolution, suddenly money doesn't matter anymore. It does. It doesn't matter in the sense that you're thinking but it really if you want it you can have it and people would have it these rasputin lived amongst the aristocracy he lived um he had exactly what he wanted from it in the material 3d yeah, world he did um and yeah. so do lots of others the story of the Comte de saint-germain particularly is one that i wanted people to to look up lived in exquisite luxury nobody knows who how where there's no family bloodline it's on merit. And the, well, it's not by appointment. Even. It's by magic. Yeah, by appointment, but it's by magic. He wasn't even appointed to great positions. He just turned up in the court, um, was fated at court. Everybody deferred to him, people. He was always talked about, and then he left. And suddenly, momentous events start taking place, one of which was the French Revolution. But we were. <laughs> <laughs> But we tried trace. <laughs> but, but the Comte de Saint-Germain is like, he's like the the first, well, card zero in the major arcana of the tarot in, in as much as he can dip in and out without having any responsibility. See, bear in mind, these people don't take responsibility for anything. Rasputin didn't. Uh, neither did the Comte de Saint-Germain. He was just there living the life. Living the dream, I think we'd say today. So let's not devalue it. It's not that you become spiritually evolved and then suddenly all of your all of your thoughts of material comfort and things that you would enjoy material drift away. That's new age bullshit. You bring back what you bring back to have an experience on this world. And that experience will be whatever you choose it to be. Whatever you choose it to be. And that is amazing. Remember, there is no good and evil. Drop your stupid morality, people, and understand the theme of this book that we're discussing, and Uspensky uses it as the metaphor and analogy time and time again when he is telling you that dualism is fake. He says, there is no this, there is no that, there is no good and evil. And this is the point. You have what you want. It doesn't mean that you haven't had spiritual evolution if you then go on to be Hitler. I'm not saying that Hitler had had the spiritual experience. I'm just saying, you could choose to do that. You could choose to be whatever you want. There is no evil. The point is that you come back and you do what you want. I would suggest that somebody like the Comte de Saint-Germain was brilliant because he operates in the three in the three D world. He operates at the level where he's living the life of absolute luxury at the pinnacle of everything, but has absolutely zero responsibility. I don't want to be in charge of an army. I don't want to be the governor of this country. I just want to enjoy the fruits of being at the top of the tree and have everything, everything. 
Does it matter that I'm not spending my entire day working at a business or, or a political system so that I end up as a billionaire? That's far too much responsibility. It's good enough for me to know the king. The king will share all of the good things and all of that wealth with me. <laughs> I haven't had to earn. I haven't had to earn. Listen, if you were invited onto a super yacht in Monaco, at the weekend of the Monaco Grand Prix, probably the most glamorous sporting thing that ever happens in the world at all. And you're on somebody, some some Arab prince's super yacht, and it's like the yacht costs something like, I don't know, $500 million. Uh, and you're on there. Do you need to own that yacht? Or is it just enough that you're invited on as a guest and have access to everything that that yacht represents? All the parties, the champagne, the, the, the girls, the whole thing. Um, why would you want the responsibility of owning a yacht and having to crew it and making sure that it's all seaworthy and all that, or employing people to do that so that you have to oversee them? At some point, you have a responsibility. The book stops with you. If you are just the guest, if you have put yourself into that circle... And you just enjoy it. And then that weekend, you leave that yacht and you wave bye-bye, bye-bye, because you're going to some party in Aspen or San Moritz or whatever the hell the, the party is or Barbados for some other billionaire's private island or whatever. Why would you want that responsibility? This, this is a choice you have. You could just like enjoy the spoils of, of being that person without the responsibility so that you can flit about and have whatever experiences you want. Does this sound attractive? Oh my God, to me it does. And fortunately for us, Suspensky is going to give us some signposts and keys to uh, get ourselves a ticket. And, yeah, uh, let's rock and roll. He's, he's, yeah, he's continuing with uh, Max Muller for a little while and he's talking about, okay, so... We, we've talked about the, the prophets and the poets. These are the people that stand out and represent the multitude and speak their thoughts and express their sentiments. But what is what is the the essence of it? What is the essence of the of the message? And he said that you find it in the Upanishads, and it stands completely by itself. And if you uh, were looking for the the teachings in a nutshell. That would be in three words, and they came from um, the greatest Vedanta teachings, and that is, now I'm, hopefully I say this correctly, Tat Tuam Azi, mm. and it means thou art that. And What's that? Well, funny you should ask. So then Dispensky further explains that stands for that which is known to us under different names in different systems in ancient philosophies. So um, it is Zeus or Aesthias or um, tot on, it's tot on. Oh, sorry, did I say did I say something wrong? No, you didn't. You were you were looking at how to pronounce it, and I just made you. I wanted to make sure that you didn't say two because it's to. In Greek, that's pronounced tot because that's a Greek word, and on is what what looks in our Western Latin script. It looks like an ov. It's an omega new. So it's it's ah, tot thank on. You for that. Yeah, so or taught on in Greek. I, I um, knew that my classics degree would come in. My, my I think <laughs> I think that was well done because I don't have a classics degree, <laughs> an engineering degree, but not a classics. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it is uh, what Plato meant by the eternal idea, um, what uh, agnostics call the unknowable and what Max Muller calls uh, infinite in nature, and and I wonder because we talked about Aspensky using the word nature before to mean what we we deemed as the infinite, uh, whether he's pulled that word out from here, infinite in nature, and that's maybe where he's got that word nature yeah. from. Yeah, I think so. I do think so. I don't think I don't think there's much to debate about that, and we have debated it long and hard. Before. We have debated it. Yeah. No, I just thought it was an interesting link. But I, but I do like, I do, I do like that Max Muller actually then rips all that to one side and says, since I'm talking about India, let's just say what the Indians call it, Brahman, because this is a word that we do see in Western mm. culture now, especially since the the British um, invasion and colonize. Well, they didn't colonize actually, but the the British takeover of India, the ownership, gathering it into empire. Lots of Indian systems made known to us, and that word Brahman has definitely come into the UK culture and language. So Brahman, yeah, and he continues on with Brahman. So let's let's us use that as well. So Brahman is the that in thou art that, 
and then Max Muller explains what the vow is and he calls that the infinite in man or the soul, the self, different words. Modern modern terminology might use the higher self as well. Yep, he says it's the being behind every human ego. The Atman. A- Atman is the other word, isn't it? So you know, Yes. That, so Brahman and Atman. Mm. But the Atman is the Brahman. So the expression thou art that means, according to Max Muller, thy soul is the Brahman. Or in other words, the subject and the object of all being and of all knowing are one and the same. Now, I think that's, that's the, the nutshell. The subject and the object are one and the same. There isn't duality. Yeah. No, there is none. So, that, so thou art that. But then we, we get to that thing about language again. So how can you talk about thou? Because it's got to be I. There is no thou. There is only the one thing. Um, one of the great um, phrases of modern mysticism in the West from the ceremonial magical orders and so on is this great phrase i am what i am it actually comes from the bible uh, it's moses and the burning oh. bush and so on but it because because Juda, judaic systems are one of the foundations of modern ceremonial magic as long as well as egyptian and so on um yeah i i am that i am which was sort of belittled because it became a phrase of popeye the sailor man but I am what I am. <laughs> this phrase is, is, is great because it doesn't use dualism. It's the nearest you get to monism. I am what I am, where I encompasses everything. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's, I've heard that turn of phrase before and never really thought it really encompasses the everything. Uh, language tri- that's that the, you can't, yeah, it's, can't it's, express. It's, it's the best and nearest attempt to express uh, monism that I, I know. And there's a reason why it stood the test of time. It's a reason why um, there it is in the Bible. And obviously, when, when Moses is asking, who is it? You know, the burning bush and all that. Again, we belittle that. Uh, what happened there, you should understand as being something terrifying. But... Um, nevertheless, Moses asks the question and gets the answer. And so to continue on with this theme, it kind of blows apart this uh, concept that the human soul emanated from the divine soul or was a portion of it. And Max Muller points this out, that you know, if, if that and thou are one and the same, how can you have the human soul being part of, of the divine soul or, or a portion of it. It's, it. It is one and the same. Yeah, well, that's a language problem again, isn't it? You've still got to describe it because consciousness in an individual sense is just a focus of attention. That's all it is. Mm. Uh, let's just say, for example, let's just say that a human being represented the eternal everything. The, so it's, it's, a mon- it's a monist thing right the human condition my eyes can focus on seeing a picture on the wall in front of me while my hand dipped in some hot water is focused on the temperature of the water and the texture of the water we are like that we are focuses of attention from different aspects of the one thing and that's what our experience is in the in the 3d world and why we are unique here because we're having a unique experience nobody else's experience is like ours in some circumstances, other people's can be similar, but it's not exactly the same. We are, we are different yeah. focuses of attention, that's all, of the one thing. What we're doing is now pointing out that various cultures around the world have had this same thing, and it's been there for thousands of years. So let's just do what he's trying to do in this, in this chapter, which is illustrate that. And it's like in the, in the Upanishads, in the Vedas and so on, you know, they use... Instead of thou art that, I am Brahman, or Brahman is me. The nature of it being unchangeable, eternal, eternal cognition, and so on. And it's there. It's you know. So the Vedantist, uh, who the teachers, moves on the same strain strain of thought. And this is the really crucial point here. Not not by going round in circles about thou art that. 
is that what the Vedas say and the Vedantic teacher, they are the teachers of the Vedas in this ancient system in Greece, actually are saying exactly, exactly the same as the people with whom they would have had zero contact, as far as we know, which is the Greek philosophers of the Ionian coast, the Eleatics and so on. You know, they, they you know, because they occupied, as it says here in the book, the same stratum of thought in which Eleatic philosophers moved in Greece. If there is one infinite, they said, there cannot be another. I love that. Me that too. just rang true. How can you have two infinites? For the other would limit the one. And with the Spensky's previous big dissertation on infinity and, and looking at it and saying, well, infinity times infinity or infinity plus infinity is always infinity. <laughs> yeah. You cannot have multiple infinities. It's not, even in our logic, it's not possible. Yep. So, so again, uh, again, to just show where the Eleatic Greek model maps to it, they said, if God is to be the mightiest and the best, he must be one. Because if there were two or more, he would not be the mightiest and the best. <laughs> because, because if you had a power that separated itself from the mightiest and the best, then it was mightier than the mightiest and the best <laughs> to separate Absolutely. itself out to two. <laughs> Absolutely. They say it can't be. You know, it can't be divided. This is where you get the, 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 these great paradoxes, which if you ever went to study philosophy are certainly some of the things that you would be introduced to early on because they're a lot of fun you know so you get the stadium and the arrow and things like this these are the paradoxes of Zeno the Zenovian paradox Zeno was one of the great Ionian philosophers of this time and you know you get this idea that you can't actually move you can't go anywhere you could not walk to the other side of this room is the way that the paradox goes and why can't you? Why can't that happen? Well, it's quite simple. Before you can move, you can walk from this side of the room to that side of the room, you must first walk half the distance. Yes. And before you can walk half that distance, you've got to walk half of that distance. And you keep doing this to stupidity, to infinity, and infinity then suggests that you can't move at all. So that the idea of walking from one side of a room to another has to be some kind of illusion and, and totally divorced from the truth and reality. The paradoxes were designed to try to illustrate that there is only one thing, that, you know, because that's their tenet. Modernism is the one thing. Obviously, the limitations of language mean that since then, and particularly in the modern world, because everybody thinks they're so clever now, um, you go to a university and they'll say, oh, yes, well, the paradoxes of Zeno, that we can actually we can actually destroy the paradox and we can make, make it so that you can work. It's like you're wasting your time, dude. It's just an illustration of something that you have to experience. Your, lang your language is equally stupid in trying to explain this as you claim that Zeno's was in making his assumption. Zeno's just trying to find a way through language to illustrate the point of monism, and I think it does it really well. It's like when you, the arrow one is the same thing. When you shoot an arrow, it can never reach the target because the arrow first has to travel half the distance, and to do that, it has to, and, and it goes back ad absurdum to the point where the arrow can't even start. Yeah, and but it makes the point, doesn't it? It's all he's trying to do is to to, to make you think. It's all he's trying to do is to get a, your mindset into this idea that things are not separate. That's all it's trying to do is, you know, Zeno didn't go to university. Zeno didn't have to pass an exam. He didn't have to um, impress his tutors and his lectures and, and then come away with a certificate. Zeno was just trying to point out to other people who came to him for advice and for explanations, a way of understanding a fundamental truth. That's all he was doing, you know. He wasn't trying to score 100. It wasn't like, oh, Zeno, your paradox, we can see around it, so you're only going to get an A, not an A+. Zeno didn't live in that stupid modern world. So, you know, so let's not, let's not um, argue about the validity of the Zenovian paradoxes or the Ionian paradoxes, the Eleatics. Uh, they're just trying to illustrate a point to idiots. Duh. 
Yeah. You have to be a fool to spend half of your life trying to disprove the paradox. So moving on. So moving on. So yeah. So so Ospensky, Yeah, he has made the point that all these the the same concept has been the foundation of you know so many different trains of thought around the world that you know back in those days it wasn't like you could email someone and say i've had this thought or get on a zoom session and say well what do you think about this they were totally devoid of each other they came up with it so it's based in some sort of foundation of truth universal exactly right to give the um, readers and listeners um, some idea of where you can go with this um, there's a there's a nice little thing at the bottom of my page it might not be at the bottom of the page in your version but he tells you where you can go and find this. So, for example, the Eleatic ideas, the Greek ideas, that there is and can only be one absolute being, infinite, unchangeable, immortal, ineffable, you know, blah, 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 those Christian words came into it as well. Um, Without a second, without parts and passions, are the same ideas which underlie the Upanishads and have been fully worked out in the Vedanta Sutras. In other words, if you want to start working on this yourself, these are the ways, places you go to. So you'll go to, for example, the Vedanta Sutras. If you don't know what the Vedanta Sutras are, you now have Google. So look it up, find the books on Amazon and start reading. And then you'll find practices, ways of changing your thinking. This will do it. This will get you there. Suddenly you'll find that you're meditating because you'll realize that meditation isn't what people think it is. It's not about sitting in a lotus position with your forefinger and thumb of each hand touching, resting on your knees, shouting om, om, om all the time. You're going in and out of meditation all the time, every day. Reading these books would be a meditation. It would be a good way to start. So I just thought I'd point out. Yeah, great. Uspensky isn't just like giving us some... obscure arguments here he does tell you where to go he, there are pointers for you to go and that's what and that's one that's one not just all of them but that's a good place to start because it hasn't been corrupted by um, theology over the centuries yes and uh, interestingly enough in this original version there was no reference there so he's added that in in the second version which is ah, in, which that is interesting is because he obviously wants people to have a practical um, experience yeah. here. Okay, moving on. Moving on. So what what I think uh, Spinsky is pointing out is that why would why would what day religions deviate from this? And I think he's kind of saying the reason is that gives them control. If they say that the only way to get to this nirvana, to this God, is following our steps, you know, and and, our, and in death you'll get there, or in life, you can get there by following this sequence of events, and and, and we'll we'll um, control it. They've taken away the uh, monistic point of view, made it dualistic to put them in a in a better position. You know, basically, it's a, a power thing. Yeah, he make, he makes a lot of other um, points. You know, from Muller, you know, he says most of the religions in the ancient world relation between the soul and God being represented as a return of the soul to God, a yearning for God, a kind of divine homesickness finds expression in most religions. But the road that is to lead us home and the reception which the soul may expect in the Father's house have been represented in very different ways in different religions. According to some, a return of the soul to God is possible after death only. And that's the biggest form of control because then they say, well, yes, you'll only get back to God and the Father's house after death. But even for that to happen, you have to do exactly what we're telling you you do while you're here, before you die. Ooh, that's what dear saying. God. Yeah, and that's, and that's where we had the divorce, and, and it's there. Um, but other religious teachers, like the ones in India, for example, um, the final beatitude of the soul can be achieved in this lifetime and that it only requires knowledge only, knowledge of the necessary unity of what is divine in man with what is divine in God. Once you have that realisation, you're there, you've done it. Mm. And there's no need to have some great controlling uh, system. Yeah, he goes on to say, Sometimes this conception of the intimate relation between human and the divine natures comes suddenly as the result of an unexplained intuition or self-recollection. 
Now, that happened famously to Eckhart Tolle. He describes in the preface of his book, The Power of Now. There are others more, ex more extreme and, you know, perhaps better uh, from, a, from a dramatic point of view. But El Eckhart Tolle's book is very accessible. Read that preface and you'll have an idea what is meant by, by this spontaneous connection, understanding of the connection with the divine. Right? That that's that's what's going on there. I, I'm here trying to try to draw out what Uspensky is trying to do in this in this chapter, which is give you practical, practical, practical examples and things to do. Uh, and this is this is telling you this. This is all it is. Forget your religious structures that have been imposed at later. This is how it happens. You know, the Eleatics had clearly passed through a similar phase. You know, if God had been once recognized as the infinite in nature and the soul as the infinite in man, it seemed to follow that there could not be two infinities, which is exactly what the Greek Eleatic philosophers had been through. Um, if, there's, if there is an infinite, they said, it is one, for if there were two, they could not be infinite, but would be finite one toward the other. But that which exists is infinite, and there cannot be such. Therefore, that which exists is one. And then, you know, the infinite in man is not different from the infinite in God or the different or in the infinite in nature. They're all the one same damn thing. And it's yeah. interesting that we're talking about the Eleatics and we talk about the, the ancient uh, um, Indian philosophy. And the fact is that this goes all around the world as well. Those similarities wow. go all around the world, but it's great to use the Eleatics because they, they would be well known to, a lot of people who would be reading this book when Spensky wrote it. So Spensky does um, explore why or how this division happened where, you know, we, we had these ancient teachings and then this, these big religions have come out in the modern times with a, um, a big religious structure that's got the all power. And how did this happen? It said when the question was asked how the consciousness of this divine sonship could ever have been lost, the answer given by Christianity was by sin. The answer given by the Upanishads was by avidya, nescience. So, in other words, they made it your fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, hang on, it is. It is your fault. If you had kept your divine connection, you wouldn't have a concept of duality. Sin only exists it cannot exist without duality. So it That's is right. your fault. It is your fault for dropping into this dualist way of thinking. Yeah, by yeah, That's drinking it. the Kool-Aid. That's it. I am going to suggest again that we have this big pointer. And while it's left to us in the world, we should, we should visit it again and again and again. And it is the First Nation people of Australia who don't have a concept of sin. In anything like this way, they simply do not. We've imposed laws upon them and called certain things criminal and dirty and all that. They just did what they do. The average native um, First Nation person in Australia, how many possessions does that person have on average? I can tell you, so stop thinking, between three and five. And even that's fluid, because if somebody else needed one of those possessions, they just come and use it. Yeah. And nobody goes berserk about it. Yeah. Which is a beautiful way to live, isn't it? I mean, that's interesting, is. isn't it? Well, let's put it this yeah. way. Until we turned up, they were the happiest people on earth. Yes. Which is, of course, why they've had to, we've had to suppress them for that very reason. Because of what happened on the mutiny on the bounty. Which was nothing to do about harsh Captain Bly and everything to do about people seeing how the people in Tahiti and those South Pacific Islands lived and thought, and I've got to get back on that horrible, vile, disease-ridden little ship crammed in with 400 other dirty blokes when I could just lounge on the beach, spend my day fishing, fucking, and gathering fruit. Um, let me think. Royal Navy ship. Tough choice. Tahiti. <laughs> uh, and so a lot of them just decided they weren't getting back on that boat. That's what happened. Captain Bly, one of the greatest sailors of all time, still holds the record for the longest open boat navigation in recorded history, after being put in the open boat from the bounty and set off. Um, he came home totally exonerated, and they gave him the pride, the, the greatest battleship that we got, the one, the brand new battleship we just commissioned. 
this guy knew how to run a ship properly. He wasn't a thug. He wasn't a monster. This is this is what's come out to us again because they have to hide the truth. Otherwise, people wouldn't be wanting to get their ten pound ticket and move to Australia. We'd all want to go and lie on the beaches in Tahiti, fucking fishing and gathering fruit and doing bugger all and having no other responsibilities all day. Yes, of course they hide it from us. Mm. Life could be like that. It could be like your First Nation people live. It's fantastic. Could be like that, but it isn't. Not for us anyway. Not for us anyway. Yes. And that's, I think that's, therein lies the, the, the point, isn't it? So mm-hmm. We now start looking at philosophical thinking and Dispensky points out that it has to start from the same common point. All philosophies have to start from the same common point and that is you've got to start accepting the fact that you don't know everything. Unless you're Rudolf Steiner and Ledbetter. <laughs> He's quoted Lead Beater and Steiner as well. I know he has. I know he has. I know he has. <laughs> so they, they, they knew something, but he hasn't actually rewritten their whole book, so obviously they didn't know everything. No. He's thrown a few of his own ideas in. <laughs> I know. So the question is, how did the phenomenal world become unreal and how do we make it real again? This is this philosophical question that Spence is asking. And, or in other words, how did the infinite become finite? I think they're pretty they're pretty valid questions, you know. If if everything is infinite, well, what happened? When 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 did it become finite? And did it become finite? No, it hasn't become finite. And this is the this is the point. It hasn't become finite. Remember, finite or let's call it finity, is an illusion. Finity, yes. We've yeah. already been this whole book started by showing us that what we think is real is actually fake. It's a, it's an illusion. What's happened is this desire, this need to have infinite experience. Infinite experience includes the illusion of duality. Yeah. I love this little, this little thing that <laughs> he's put in here. When it is said that Brahman is, that means at the same time that Brahman is not. That is to say that Brahman is nothing of what it is supposed to exist in our sensuous perceptions. I love yeah, that. that's yeah, that's great, isn't it? It is, and at the same time, it is not. <laughs> Get your head around that one. <laughs> yes, because it can't just be is, because that would be dualist. It has to be is not at the same time. <laughs> and I love the bit that it says here is uh, when a great Indian sage was asked to describe Brahman, he was simply silent. That was his answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Superb, isn't it? But but it's it's a way, isn't that like you know, it's just a very elegant way of getting around the limitation of language. Silence. Yeah, isn't that just brilliant? <laughs> I loved it when I read that. I thought, yeah, yep, enough said, or rather, not said. <laughs> and then those two those two verses of the Sankara, which he does quote later, are great as well. Without without being quite as amusing. Brahma yes. is true, the world is false, the soul is Brahma and is nothing else. And that's exactly what we've just been saying. This this world is just illusion. Yeah. And that's something but I I like elegant suggestions like that. Yeah, no, no, it's true. He he, he just further um sums it up. He says, uh, this is really a very perfect summary. What truly and really exists is Brahman, the one absolute being. The world is false, or rather is not what it seems to be. But do you notice that Spensky, uh, in explaining it, was redundant. All he's done is fleshed out something that's far more elegantly described in the two mm. lines above. Those two lines say exactly that. And you understand it. Brahman mm-hmm. is true. The world is false. The soul is Brahman and is nothing else. And Spensky then went on to take three lines of English, well, Russian, whatever, to, to, say not, to say something that didn't add one jot of understanding to what those two lines did. And I'm not knocking Uspensky, I'm just saying, you know, you can go around in circles all the time with it, and he's fallen into a trap there, as we have on a million occasions during these podcasts of, of going circular, you know, mm. of getting caught in a circularity. We've done it a million yes. times, so I'm not, I'm not having to go to Uspensky, but when you get somebody that really is switched on and connected, like the author of the Sankara, 
that sums it up like that. This is why haiku poetry is so valuable in Japan. Now, what, what Japan does with Shinto and, and Zen is fantastic. You know, the idea of a meditation being to create the perfect bonsai garden. Every small movement of your hand when you just pick up the knife to cut something here, to shape that there. You're understanding your one connection with everything and you're not getting the sensory input of false information from a false world. You switched off from it when you do, when you give your full attention to small acts and then see the beauty in it. It's interesting. So these things, the things that the solutions that are the most elegant are the the least convoluted. It's It seems that way, doesn't it? The very mm. simple, the very yep. simple. And of course, you can't, uh, you know, package that up and sell it for a million bucks, is it? I mean, like it's there for yeah. everyone, and uh, it's understood by everyone. Here's a nice change, though. Here's a nice contrast. Looking down here, important to observe that the Vedantist, i.e., the the Brahmins and so on, the Vedantist does not go so far as certain Buddhist philosophers who look upon the phenomenal world as simply nothing. To the Vedists, mm. the world is real, only it is not what it seems to be. Simply nothing. It's What he's saying is that this phenomenal world does exist, but our perception of it is fake. Yeah, and that that's very important, isn't it? Because it isn't nothing. We're supposed to be here enjoying ourselves, having a yeah. fucking good time. Yeah. You know, it's it's not trivial. On the other hand, it, it literally is like going to, to a movie. What you watch on the screen when you go to the cinema, you know isn't real because you know it's coming from a projector and it's beams of coloured light moving and this, that and the other. And you're divorced from it. You're an observer. You can, you can see that. What the Vedantist is saying is understand that your experience is that. This, this phenomenal world, it does exist, just like the beams of light, the photons, the coloured photons of light that end up projecting on a cinema screen. Um, they do exist. Those photons do exist. Blah, 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 blah. Um, that's what the Vedantist would say about this phenomenal world. It's, it is just like that projection. It does exist, but it's not what you think it is. Don't get wrapped up in it. And you can enjoy a good movie. You can. But the difference is we understand that the movie isn't real in the sense that you know jason bourne is not climbing up that building that that wall he's not in any danger we know that we're sitting in the chair we can get emotionally caught up in it but then we can disassociate from from it as well which we do yeah. all the time what we're in in our experience of this world is a place where we've got caught up in the movie and we can't get out we've got caught up in the movie so much and so deep and, and a lot of us don't even believe there is a way out. Yeah. Those of us that are seeking to step back from, from the illusion and see it for what it is, find that difficult. And yet the vast majority would call you an idiot for even trying. Oh, what do you mean the world's, the world's an illusion? No, you're talking mad. You know, that's where we are. And that's what the... And it's just taken me five minutes to say that, whereas... These ancient sages, these great ancient philosophers say it in two lines. Job done. Job done. There is a veil, but the Vedanta philosophy teaches that the eternal light behind it can always be perceived more or less clearly through philosophical knowledge. In other words, turn your attention to finding the reality and the reality will come to you. And uh, I've got one more line there. It says, it can be perceived because in reality... It is always there. Yeah, and that's the truth of it. Um, you know, first of all, you've got to have, but it does take faith. It does take that intangible thing, that nominalization, faith. Nominalization is just a noun that that is kind of vague. If you can't put it in a wheelbarrow and carry it off, then, <laughs> then it's a nominalization. Things like empowerment, knowledge, and faith. Faith is a nominalization. So you you look at faith, but first of all, you've got to have this, this inner yearning that tells you that it is true, that there is only this one thing. How can I find and experience it? Once you give your attention to that, you it will come to you. It's to use your analogy of the, the uh, trying to get out of the, the movie, you know, to turn around and see that that's being a 
projected by a beam of light to look up mm, and see something. That's right. You go, hang on a second. Let me, where does that come from? Then go look for Absolutely. where it's coming from. There is something here coming back to this. What Uspensky is doing in this chapter is giving us links between all of these different and varied forms of, of thought and philosophy from all around the world, from ancient times, are all based on the same thing. There's something absolutely fabulous here. It may seem strange to find that results of the philosophy of Kant and his followers thus anticipated under varying expressions in the Upanishads and in the Vedanta philosophy of ancient India. In other words, Immanuel Kant, who had, um, let's just say, zero interest and even less knowledge of India, came up with exactly the same philosophy via a different rationalist Western road. Which, yeah, which I think is great. And I love what he says here in, in the quote from Kant. Our experience supplies us only with modes of the unconditioned, and that's in capital, like the capital yeah. U, as presented under the conditions of our consciousness. So uh, we experience the infinite through what our consciousness filters. So we, we, yeah. we're experiencing the infinite. We're just seeing it through the conditions of our consciousness. That's what I think he's saying. Yep. Yeah. And it's true, and that is true. We are seeing it through filters. Some people, the filters are so dense that they don't see anything else. They don't even perceive of anything else. They don't even get the inner yearning. They're locked. It's all locked out. That's a lot of people, actually. And then you read a book like this, and you go, "Wait a minute." <laughs> yeah, but these these people for whom it's locked out, they never read a book like this. They don't even go searching for the book. That's that's the whole point. There's no inner urge. There's no nothing that makes them want to see. Interesting that. It's interesting, isn't it? This is interesting because now we come back to Uspensky having a, putting a little a little paragraph in. Because yes. in my version now, he says, in the chapters about the Logos and about Christian theosophy, which is an interesting thing in itself, Max Muller says that religion is the bridge between the visible and the invisible, between finite and infinite. Well, I'm going to suggest that um, it should be but it's been manipulated so that it is no such bridge. And in fact, it is the drawbridge that has been pulled up to stop you getting into the castle of infinity. And Despensky says that in the next sentence. Yeah. It may be truly said that the founders of the religions of the world have all been bridge builders. As soon as the existence of a beyond, of a heaven above the earth, the powers above us and beneath us, has been recognised, a great gulf seemed to be fixed between what is called by various names, the earthly and heavenly, the material world and the spiritual, the phenomenal and noumenal, and best of all, visible and invisible world. So, yeah, yeah exactly right. Big big drawbridge. Um, we're going to tell you that uh, there's this and that, and uh, you can get here from there. By doing what, you, yeah, by, by doing by doing what, what we tell you. you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And by yeah. the way, what we tell you means that your life isn't going to be as happy and enjoyable and as comfortable as ours. And in fact, you're not going to get there. We're not going to tell you this because there is no there. It's already, it's it's already, already here. Because yeah. <laughs> he goes on to somebody very contemporary, more contemporary than Kant. It was certainly contemporary in Spensky's days. And Professor William James, who got, as he says, nearer than all the others to the ideas of Muller's philosophy. And in the last chapter of his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, God, he must have been fun around the dinner table. Um, <laughs> Professor James, <laughs> actually, he probably was, because he says in this book, he says, the warring gods and formulas of the various religions do indeed cancel each other, but there is a certain uniform deliverance in which all religions all appear to meet. And this is the liberation of the soul. Yes, they all have that idea, but they, but most of them, certainly all of them in the West, use it as a means of controlling your behaviour in this lifetime. Yes, hence so, the yeah, definition of sin. Now, obviously, there's there's a huge like copy and paste of Professor William James here, and I don't think it's worth going through every little bit of it because he's talking about what is the objective of truth and so on, you know, and the content of religious experiences is, you know, we don't really need to go through that. It's a, it's different based on um, who's in charge of the religion that you're looking at. They'll tell mm -hmm. you what your experience is going to be and how limited it is. 
Yeah. Yeah, he does say that one thing that they've all got in common, all these various religions, is that they all say that something more actually exists. You call it whatever name you want, God, Brahman, whatever the hell, you know. But they all ex they all agree on just this one point, that there is something more than this. And I might add that what they do also say is, and we have the connection to it, so stick by us. That's exactly what they say. You know, it says when they treat of their experiences of union with what this God is, that their speculative differences appear most clearly. Over this point, pantheism, theism, nature, second birth, works and grace, karma, immortality and reincarnation, rationalism and mysticism carry on inveterate disputes. Yes. In other words, they all agree on the one and only thing that actually matters, and then they go to war where there have been hundreds of millions of deaths over the things that they've in the frameworks that they've invented to control people and keep them away from the one thing that counts. Yes, they've all got a ladder. They've stuck it up against a wall and said, no, if you don't climb up our ladder, you can't get to the top of the wall. That's the one. And they've stand at the bottom yet, fighting over which ladder. <laughs> yeah, and whereas the top of the wall is available to every ladder. That's right. That's right. And there is a top of the wall, we've all agreed. We yeah, all we want have. to get to the top of the wall. By but, the way, uh, we're, the, the, the top of the wall is us, and we are the top of the wall, because there's only one. <laughs> that's right, we're already at the top of the wall. They're just trying yeah. to make us think that we're still at the bottom fighting about it. And that is a distraction, isn't it? Yeah. By the way, if you want a system of releasing yourself so that you can have this experience... There are different ways of doing it. And in the East, they're far more open about allowing people access to it than they were here. So it seems to me. Um, which is why in the New Age, a lot of people moved to these Indian gurus and then Zen Buddhism and so on. These all became popular because they are a way of at least shutting out for a moment the phenomenal world and, yeah. and allowing yourself the opportunity to find a path of your own to the divine, the infinite, the Brahma, mm. whatever. Yeah, we get to this part where he says, um, uh, the further limits of our being plunge, it seems to me, into an altogether other dimension of existence from the sensible and merely understandable world. Name it the mystical region or the supernatural region. We belong to it in a more intimate sense than that which we belong to the visible world. So he's kind of saying, well, we've got a bigger connection to to the noumenal world than the phenomenal. We just don't recognise it. It's because the phenomenal world doesn't exist in the in the way that we in, in the way that we think it does. That's why. Yeah. So so of course we have that. Yeah, but then it says the communion with the invisible world is a real process with real results. This communion we see in mysticism. Mm, I know, and that. You know, he says, like, personal religious experience has its roots and centre in mystical states of consciousness. And I think, because the very next part says, what, after all, is mysticism? And I think that's a good ending point for this part of the chapter, because otherwise we would we would just get into discussion of mysticism and what it is and how we can understand it, and we'd have to end it. So I think if we end it here and tease the listener with the idea that we are going to discuss the concept of mysticism and how we how we can find it and why it's important in the next one so it's been great i mean this has been really interesting and and it gets even more interesting i should say as we move on now it, this this starts ramping up uh, i think that's a great idea and uh thank you very much pete for uh so far the beginning of this chapter um, having a discussion and I look forward to next yeah. week when we look at what after all is mysticism brilliant that's been fantastic yeah I've enjoyed it and looking forward to the next one that'll be fabulous fabulous and thanks everyone for listening <laughs>